I'm Dr. Lara Devgan. I'm a plastic surgeon in New York City, the CEO of Scientific Beauty, and of course, a major beauty enthusiast. You are listening to Beauty Bosses, where we chat with fellow industry leaders who are shaping beauty, fashion, wellness, and all things pretty. Hi everyone, welcome to Beauty Bosses. I am so pleased to introduce you to my amazing guest today, Sarah Maslin Neer. Welcome, Sarah. Hi, thank you. Sarah Maslin Neer, as many of you know, is an American journalist. She's a New York Times writer, and she was actually a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in 2016 for a really incredible series that she wrote about the nail salon industry and abuses in that field. So, Sarah, let's jump right in and ask you a little bit about that article. How did you first have your aha moment that this was something that was important and worth covering? I think we should start, I'm going to back up a little bit with, uh, for your watchers, uh, which is, we're both really sick, <laughs> and we are bringing <laughs> beauty bosses to you, courtesy of Tylenol and tea. And uh, a little bit of a hoarse voice. So <laughs> thanks um, for that disclaimer. <laughs> so uh, power to you for, for uh, still soldiering on, Dr. Devgan. That's um, right. So uh, for people who haven't read the story, it's a two-part series called Unvarnished, or The Price of Nice Nails, which explores essentially a systemic fraud taking place in New York City's nail salon industry uh, that I uncovered. And the second part uh, details the health effects that the workers suffer because of largely unregulated chemicals used in nail salons. Um, the first story uh, really looks into how workers are paid, and I found that they're paid exploitatively low wages by a system that preys on the fact that many of them are undocumented immigrants, unable to speak up, lack a knowledge of how they should in fact be compensated, and in fact forces them to pay for their jobs. They'll pay a fee in order to work in a nail salon, um, and then they'll be paid something like $30 a day, $40 a day, uh, really uh, criminally low wages. Um, Actually, that's only the case depending on your race. I found that within that already systemically abusive uh, industry, people were paid differently depending on their ethnicity, with uh, Latina workers paid the least by uh, Chinese above them, and Korean, the most desirable worker, paid a little bit more. And that's so shocking and fascinating. To those of you who are listening from outside of the New York metropolitan area, for some reason, New York City has a little bit of a manicure culture going on where a lot of adult women will routinely get their nails done. And there are, just to give you a little visual, nail salons on every every city block all over Manhattan, Long Island, Staten Island. Queens, the Bronx, you know, everywhere. Well, so there's been explosive growth in that industry, and uh, nationally, the average price of manicure is about twenty two fifty. I found the survey of Manhattan salons, uh, over a hundred something of them, our average price was about ten fifty. So how come ten dollars and fifty cents to get your nails a, done in, in New city, York City? Yeah, where where a latte costs four dollars. How could that be possible? And my expose found that the discount essentially was being borne on the backs of the people who could least afford. It, the workers. So the prices of New York City manicures were kept falsely depressed by essentially the workers being underpaid. Yeah, and just to give you guys a visual, you know, in the fanciest neighborhoods on Madison Avenue, Upper East Side, the Flatiron, all over New York City, well-kept women with fancy designer handbags mm-hmm. and beautiful clothes going in 
paying next to nothing for their manicures, and the manicurists themselves are the recipients of kind of this unfair system. Deeply unfair. You know, the women live uh, in outer borough areas of New York City, uh, six people to a one-bedroom that's divided by shower curtains, uh, you know, six strangers. Um, and in academia, manicure work, massage work, is called intimate labor. You know, you're holding hands with them. You're looking into their eyes. And I think my story revealed uh, that we weren't really seeing them. And, and that was what I think made it have such a tremendous impact. I, I had a big anxiety uh, because this story was about women and about beauty, uh, things that can often be marginalized or, uh, as I'm sure you're aware of, people can say it's unimportant, it's frivolous. And I thought that the story would similarly be marginalized. I thought people would read it and go like, you know, that's a shame. Right. Um, but in fact, it was seen for what it was, which was a human rights story. And it was one of the most well-read stories in the history of times. And actually, in uh, four days, the governor created emergency regulations to start to fix what was wrong with the industry. Because of your article. Yeah, it was a really cool. That's amazing. <laughs> and you. that's just like, wow. Hmm. Because it really is the purest part about writing and reporting, right? That you are a voice and a magnifying glass and a megaphone, and you can affect change in four days. Mm. I, I mean, that's why journalism is so deeply important, and it's a really dicey time for journalism right now, the meme of fake news or the idea that information is just out there in the ether. The information is vital for the public. They have to know what's going on behind closed doors, and it really has to be funded. So buy a subscription to the New York Times. Anyway. <laughs> how, how do you feel that the digital era and social media and the generation of bloggers and vloggers has changed what traditional journalism means? Well, it's done tremendous things for journalism by expanding access. The printed page was finite. People had uh, access to the, the printed page, only a, a small amount of people. Now we have a, a global reach, so it's beautiful in that way. We have millions of sus subscribers, um, but it's also dangerous. The idea that journalism is somehow free out there for just the taking, it costs a lot of money to do journalism right. My story took one year to investigate. I had six translators. Uh, who also worked with me, um, it couldn't have been uncovered uh, without funding and, and without it being deeply uh, invested in. And that's the danger about it seeming like everybody can do it. Uh, to get information is hard and expensive. Yeah, and that's so important to realize because when we're thinking about funding decisions, right, it's easy to deprioritize something that seems... Free. It yeah. seems like writing is free, right? I but call it the Wikipediaization of the world. Right. You, know, you, you think it's out there just in the ether, information to get. But to send someone to Afghanistan or even to send someone, you know, not to draw parallels, but uh, you know, it, into the belly of a, a deeply exploitative industry uh, operating in plain sight costs. Uh, really interestingly, what was so cool about having a year to do this story, I should probably say how I found the story. Yeah, tell, let's pause for a second. How yeah. did you find the story? So I found the story getting a pedicure. I went to this super glam spa that's open 24 hours in Koreatown. It's only a New York kind of entity. I mean, 24 hours, the city that never sleeps. And in case you need your nails done at 3 in the morning. Yeah, exactly. You have a destination. <laughs> we'll go tonight. Um, and so I'm getting my toes done there on my birthday as a special treat. Uh, and it's about 10 in the morning. And so I said to the woman doing my toes, you know, what a crazy thing, a 24-hour salon. Who gets, you know, who does the night treatments? And she goes, oh, I do the night treatments. And I stopped for a minute and I said, but it's daytime. And she said, oh, I do the day treatments too. I said, 
What, what do you mean? She said, I work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I sleep in bunk beds upstairs in a barracks for the workers. And when people come in for those night treatments, they shake me awake and I come back down. And she said, on the seventh day, I go back to my apartment in Flushing, Queens, and I sleep for 24 hours and I come right back. Oh, my God. Yeah. And this was about five years ago. Did your jaw just drop? I tell that story all the time. And, Laura, if you could zoom in, I have goosebumps every time I tell it. And I thought to myself, this woman is enslaved. And actually, before I left the salon, it was on an upper story, and I pressed up instead of down. And the doors opened of the elevator onto bunk beds. And I went down, and I spoke to my boss. I was a freelancer at the time. And I said, there's a sweatshop on 32nd Street. And she said, Sarah, you can't do the story. I said, what do you mean? She said, I can't do the story. You, you can't do the story because to do it right, you'd have to embed there. You'd have to watch for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, what was happening. You couldn't just get a he said, she said from the boss. That'd be a flimsy story because the boss would say, no, no, I don't do that. And the worker would say, yes, they do. And she said, as a freelancer, you get paid per article. So you can't invest all that time and money. And I was so furious, and I thought to myself, oh, the Times doesn't care about these destitute people. Four years later, when I was finally on staff, they said, do you have an idea for an investigation? I said, how about this one salon? And they said, take a month, find out if it's bigger. So I hired six translators to read the ethnic press in New York, and that's the press written in different languages in this city. Mm -hmm. And I said, don't read for bad things happening in nail salons. That's not what I was looking for, because I didn't know. I said, read for the word nail salon. Read back. And they put together dossiers of things happening, nail salons, a woman forced to marry her boss, uh, a woman who had to turn over her passport. And I just presented to my bosses, there's too much bad happening in this small industry. Let me take some time to look. And that's all I knew. And that's amazing. And then from there, this whole bombshell was revealed. Absolutely. And I always uh, learn, or I teach classes, and I, I, I learned that you report your way to better questions. So first I would ask women, what size apartment do you live in? And they'd say one bedroom. But then as I learned more, I'd ask them, how many people do you live with? Well, the answer to the first question is one bedroom. The answer to the second question is 12 people. And yet it's the same apartment. And then I started to hear things like, oh, I'd like to get a higher paying job, one that uses acrylics, you know, those long extensions. But I want to have a baby soon, so I'm going to hold off. And I would hear that and think, and then later, yeah. yeah. And later I'd say, what did you mean when you said that? Is it, oh, well, you know you have a special baby or maybe a miscarriage if you do acrylics too long. And then I was like, what? Why is this the rumor? And it turns out cosmetic chemicals in America are regulated by a 1938 law that hasn't changed and deeply underregulated compared to any country. Uh, it, the European Union regulates them more. Uh, and that as a loophole that has allowed exposure to chemicals at levels that uh, really shouldn't be happening. And there's the specter and, and possible link to miscarriage and several diseases in the industry. crazy. It really makes you pause and think, not what is the cost of beauty, but what is the price of beauty? Absolutely. So on a slightly different note, maybe you can tell me a little bit about your opinion on this. Like, is there some kind of American or even global obsession with beauty that leads us toward making horrible societal decisions like oppressing a class of workers or knowingly putting human beings in harm's way. What, what's going on there and how, why, how is beauty tied into that? 
That's a great question, and a very sophisticated one. Um, there's a lot to unpack. Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, it really isn't. I, I admire a good interviewer as I try to be one myself. It's weird to be on the hot seat, but I kind of like Sarah it. and I are actually <laughs> friends, guys, so if this interview seems a little bit more casual, it's because I have amazing boss girlfriends, or girl, girl boss. We actually like each other. Um, so, yeah, the, the answer to that question um, is that since time immemorial, people have done dangerous things for beauty, and there need to be standard bearers who will protect us from our worst impulses. So I mentioned that cosmetic chemical law in America. It's very, very weak. A huge reason why there are very few protections for consumers with cosmetics is because the chemical lobby stands to make a lot of money off of the free and unregulated uh, passage of chemicals to the consumer. So they've fought, they've poured money into preventing politicians from putting up more rules. But in the European Union or Australia, for example, they have a much more conservative approach. So they protect consumers from uh, a lot of the specter and, and potential dangers of these chemicals. I'll give you a, a little number that'll blow your mind. Um, in the European Union, there are 1,100 chemicals banned for use from cosmetics. Guess how many in the U.S.? 500, 600? Under a dozen. Get out of town. The same stuff that is illegal to put on your body in the European Union, we freely put on our bodies in the U.S. So interesting. And that's the strength of the chemical lobby. And so it takes gatekeepers like you, scientists formulating products with a more sophisticated eye than just selling crap to people uh, to protect us from, I think, our worst impulses. I think that's so fascinating because, at least in the world of plastic surgery, Europe is a place where there are many times more injectables available huh. oh. um, and that are approved for use in European nations than there are in the United States. So I always assumed that it was for some reason more lax, but maybe they're more specific, more, you know, more I, targeted. I think that the uh, cosmetic chemicals versus stuff that's uh, regulated for medical use are in two different tracks. So while they have this preemptive approach, they're like, wait, that thing might be bad for you. Let's not put it on the market. Here we have, wait, that thing hasn't been proven to be bad for you? Then it can go. And that's just weird to me. Well, it's completely shifting the burden of proof, right? It's like, is that questionable ingredient innocent and prove, until proven guilty? Or yeah. is it guilty until proven guilty? You're innocent? exactly right. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. Um, you know, people have asked me... Uh, Actually, 1,300 people emailed me after my story came out. Where can I go? That is, wait, on? pause for a yeah. second. That is incredible. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. It was read by 5 million people the first day. I mean, it was really nuts. I, I don't know anyone, literally, I don't know anyone in my circle of friends who did not read that article. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You were the talk of the town. I feel cool. Literally. <laughs> okay, so 1,200 people emailed you. 1,300 yeah, 1300 people emailed you and asked you, Okay, I want to get my nails done. Where am I supposed yeah. to do this? So, And that's actually a good question, and I want to ask you that same question. And I don't have an answer. I didn't find a good salon in the course of my investigation. Really? Yeah, I didn't find one that hadn't, at least somewhere in its history, violated some sort of rules. And did I look at all salons? No. But did I spend a year interviewing 300-plus workers? You know, that is pretty comprehensive. And so I don't have an answer. And I think until we get cosmetic chemicals, a better regulation, a bunch of senators, uh, Diane Feinstein uh, from California is working hard on that. I can't say this is a safe place. I can't say this is a reputable place. 
my answer to those people is if a place is transparent with its business practices, there's at least a better shot. So I actually go to salons and I ask them, how much do you pay your worker? Would you mind showing me? And if they say yes, they have nothing to hide. And if they say that's private information, I walk right out. So have you been able to, with good conscience, get your nails done since you wrote this piece? I do them much more myself or I don't do them. Same. <laughs> um, it's a little trade secret. Surgeons, it's really hard for a surgeon to have painted nails because you wash your hands a million times I mean, a day. Of course. Yeah. Uh, but then is that the right answer? Because then you're not patronizing and those women aren't making money. So I right. don't have the right answer. But I think a place that's transparent, a place that will answer your questions is a better shot. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that you've made quite a name for yourself given this amazing expose and nice. your other portfolio, but you actually have worked on a lot of different other types of stories. Yeah. So could you tell us a little bit more about some other different things that you've been working on? Sure. So people probably won't expect this given the fact that I'm now wear this hard-hitting investigator hat, but I was a nightlife correspondent for the New York <laughs> Times. I covered... Which I love. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's sort of like how we met out in the <laughs> glamorous world of New York. Um, when not in her surgical duds, uh, you, you wear a gown well. <laughs> um, but I uh, covered 252 parties for the New York Times in 18 months as a columnist called Nocturnalist. And I was really reticent to take that job when they offered it to me because, actually, this is about aesthetics, because of how I look. I was worried that I would be pigeonholed as sort of a blonde floozy because I look like a blonde floozy. Um, and an editor said to me, this is hard. Re reporting, getting something substantive out of celebrities and whatever is difficult. If you can do one difficult thing well, you can do another difficult thing well. And I think that was to the credit of the times that I wasn't pigeonholed, um, that reporting is reporting, whatever type. Um, but I met the Queen of Spain, though I didn't realize I was having an audience with her at the time, so I actually said to her, nice dress, and she said, thank you, and then I walked away and said, when do I get to have my audience with her? And they said, that was it. <laughs> and it was terrible. Uh, what other crazy genuine. It was genuine. She probably loved it. Yeah, she was like, thanks. <laughs> um, and then I was chased around the Hamptons by Alec Baldwin, who cornered me in a restaurant and uh, sat down at my table and cut up a piece of fish for me. Uh, so I had some really crazy experiences. So funny. Yeah, it was really Pretty Gloria, I'm imagining. Uh, yeah, we hope. <laughs> okay. Um, and uh, it was just a, a wild experience. Um, but my interest always was in sort of pro social journalism trying to make the world a better place though I don't mind making it a more beautiful place too so tell us about some of the best parties in New York since you're kind of a New York party expert aside from being a brilliant journalist well people always ask me you know don't you get bored covering parties and I say absolutely not covering parties is like being a naturalist in the wild. It's sort of watching people in the wild. And when you go to a party like that, any party can be a great party. When you go to a party thinking you have to perform or you have to get tipsy, you know, they become a snore. But when you go as sort of like this, uh, is it Richard Attenborough? You know, uh, going to see people in their habitat, uh, then it's a really interesting experience. So I just say put on a different lens to party and any party can be dope. What is your trick? I know the answer to this question, but I want everyone else to know. What is your trick for taking a great candid party photograph? And <laughs> full disclosure, Sarah and I and another friend of ours enacted this trick yeah. um, very recently at the Frick. Um, but tell us your little trick. If you guys want to be photographed well, here's what you do. Okay, so a couple things. One, uh, New York has this 
uh, weird phenomenon of the party photographer, where you go to a glamorous party and there's someone documenting it as if your partying is somehow important. <laughs> and it makes you feel great and it's also really stupid. <laughs> but you can do this with your iPhone, which Laura and I have a perfectly perfected uh, move called studied mirth, where you effortlessly toss your head back just at the moment somebody's taking a picture. So it just looks like you're having the best time. And we can go from like deadpan face, do you want to do it? Okay. Studied mirth. One, two, three. <laughs> <laughs> and then you stay sort of still because if you move, it looks. Oh yeah, like it can't be real mirth. It has to be fake mirth, um, but it looks great. And probably any picture, if you Google our names together, you will see us <laughs> doing something like. Ah, it's excellent. Um, so that's. I feel like that's a really practical tip. Now, <laughs> so that was really the point of this interview. I, oh, wanted, you to, I wanted you to share that deep knowledge. We should trademark base. studied mirth. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I think we'll do that. Um, so you're very successful now and, um, really have done such amazing things, but, you know, you weren't always who you are right now. And I would like you to tell us a little bit about some times in your life and career that were very challenging for you. Were you ever unsure that you would make it in this field? Were you ever doubtful of yourself and your abilities? Did you ever have a major roadblock? Mm. Um, that's also a great question. I am a staff reporter now, and I draw a salary, and I have health insurance. But for a long time, I was a freelance reporter, where you're really only as good as your next story. And it's a very demoralizing profession, in a way, because so much of it is being rejected. You pitch your ideas, and I'd say I spent 90% of my time pitching, 10% writing actual stories, and 90% of those pitches were rejected. And it's really challenging not to take it personally. I have one word for success, which is, my one key is hustle. Don't stop. Do not be demoralized. Keep going. If one idea doesn't work, throw it out, try another. One secret that I like to tell students about, uh, nobody realizes this, but if you're ever trying to break into an industry, think of it. The physical building, the people you want to hire you are sitting in that building at their desks. What's next to them at their desk? Computer? Phone? A phone! Even in this digital age, people still sit next to a landline at their office desks. Call the main number of the place you want to work for, figure out who you want to talk to, say their name to the operator, and call them at their desk. That's how I got all of my jobs. I would call them at the, their desk, and they would say, like, excuse me, who is this? Sarah Neer, I have an idea for you. Would you like it emailed or sent to you over the phone? And they'd always say, please email it to me. And I'd say, well, now that I have you on the phone. <laughs> and that's how I got my job. Um, obviously, that's not going to work with every person, but you just have to not take... Uh, rejection personally and keep hustling but I really think that the hard landline is a big untapped secret. I really like that tip because yeah. we've gotten to be so digital and so mobile and you know mobile phone social media. Oh people and tweet at me how can I get in touch with you? Call me. Right that's funny people DM me how can I make an appointment to see you? Exactly. <laughs> Why don't you call the office? Exactly. <laughs> Um, so the landline is alive and well. And really what that is is a, a symbol for uh, standing out, right? Nobody else is doing that, so you're going to be the one doing that. You know, I also use my babysitter theory of uh, professional life. Can I tell you it? Yes, please. Okay. Everybody knows what the best babysitter looks like, right? It's the one who puts the kids to bed early, feeds them their vegetables, and then they get dessert, right? And they're asleep by the time the parents come home. 
the bad babysitter lets them eat whatever they want. They're running and screaming when the parents come home. I mean, it's easily identifiable. Whenever you're in an entry-level job or an internship, identify what the best is, right? We all know the best intern finishes their work, walks up, and says, what else can I do for you? The best entry-level person stays a little bit later than everyone else. Find a couple criteria and do that just to stand head and shoulders above everyone else. And I think that they're easily identifiable. We all know what it looks like, and it's my babysitter theory of professional employment. I love that, and there's a version of that in surgery, which is that always go the extra mile. Like, whatever you're supposed to do, do more than that. And never leave something that could be done later um, until a later date. Like, if you're, if you're able to do it now, do it now. Yep, exactly. So I think that's really good advice. Do you have any specific tips for people who are interested in writing as a career? And, you know, besides making, breaking that wall and breaking through the landline and making yourself stand out, do you have any specific tips about how to improve writing style or... Um, things to read, things like that. Well, for journalists, it's all about story ideas. And it's hard to be a continual font of story ideas, but that's my job. I mean, every day I'm coming up with new things. And that's really a muscle you build. I try to this exercise where I try to see phenomena as the tip of an iceberg. Rather than see them as things in isolation, see anything I see as part of a larger context. So let me take a random thing from you. You're wearing a hot pink lipstick, right? So rather than see this as Dr. Devkin's choice of lipstick for the day, I'm going to see it as uh, successful professional doctors are now wearing hot pink lipstick. And then I'm going to try to verify that. I'm going to call Pantone, one of the color authorities, and see is hot pink the color of the year. I'm going to call up Maybelline or the Lipstick Suppliers of America. Have you noticed any changes in what you're selling? Um, and I'm just going to test that theory. And I, and I can use it with anything. And little by little, you'll build a muscle that starts to see things as a trend. Um, and it might not be the case. You know, sometimes it'll just, Pantone will say, nah, like our color of the year is green. Damn it. Um, but, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, that is a muscle you build to start seeing the world as part of narratives rather than just individual choices or phenomena in isolation. And that's how you find a world full of stories. Amazing. Um, so this is Beauty Bosses. Yeah. And as a journalist and writer, one thing that I really appreciate about what you do is seeing the beauty in the written word and helping to convey that because what you're doing is not only explicating, you're describing things and exposing stories and uncovering truths, but you're also putting words together in a really eloquent way. Thank you. You're very welcome. Um, I think it's true. But I wanted to know from you what the most beautiful writing you've read is or who some of your favorite writers are and mm -hmm. some of the best things you've read. So there's an article that I always go back to when I think of that uh, by a New York Times reporter called Dan Barry, and it's called uh, The Cold in Maine. And it's an article about a heating crisis in Maine with heating oil. The state's dependent on heating oil. That's a really boring story, right? Like, who cares? But it's written through one heating oil company where the owner is too sympathetic to cold people. And so he gives them a little more oil when he shouldn't because he just can't stand the idea of anyone being cold. And eventually he gets tapped out and this old couple, they're basically heating their house with uh, a, a flame from their oven and, and they're, they're freezing and that's also dangerous. 
Um, and he says, I just can't give any more. I'm, I'm going destitute. And uh, at the very end of the story, somebody does end up, um, uh, sorry, the old man comes in with a title for his car to pay for his heating oil because you can just see the desperation. And in the end, uh, somebody pays for his heating oil and it's the receptionist at the oil company. And that to me is a way into a story that is so dry that Maine has an overdependence on heating oil that like tugs at the heart. It's not heating oil, it's people, it's lives, it's homes, it's desperation. And to me, any story that you can tell through a humanizing lens is a beautiful story. And I just, that story I read it a couple times a year just to remember that any news story, any political story is really just a story of people. That's really beautiful. Thank you. Because it's all about the specifics, right? The general platitudes don't mean anything if you don't tie them to the human experience. And in your work, you know, you can easily dismiss uh, aesthetics as something that just makes people prettier. But when you see it as an individual who you've helped give confidence to, and you see it as an individual who always had some flaw that made them not speak up or be themselves or want to be a center of attention, when you see it in terms of humanness and individuality, it makes the work so much more meaningful and powerful. Um, and I, I think that when we distill things to their humanness is when we do our best work. That's really great. Thank you. Well... You know, we've hit on most of the difficult questions. Yeah. And now I have to ask you some more fun questions. Oh, I love fun questions. Um, and what was the craziest thing that you've seen when you were covering as the nocturnalist for the New York mm. Times? As the nocturnalist? Mm-hmm. Well, I've got a couple. Some I can't say out loud. <laughs> some are illegal. No, not illegal. Some are too crazy and off the record. Um... I will say a crazy one that wasn't nocturnalist, um, which is, this is interesting for medical reasons. So horseshoe crabs are uh, used for, their blood is, is a milky light blue color, which is bizarre. And it's a very essential uh, product in testing for diseases, actually, because something in it um, wraps around uh, diseases when uh, it, it, it identifies them. Uh, diseases wouldn't be the right word, wraps around bacteria. Um, And so it's used in medical testing. So it's illegal to hunt horseshoe crabs because they're really important. They actually drain their blood and then put them back in the water. It's really crazy. Who knew that that is a component in, like, strep testing? Everything. Horseshoe crab blood. So there were these... Fascinating. It's crazy. That's why I love journalism. You can, like, enter any world. So there are these crazy fishermen that are secretly poaching horseshoe crabs because they're also really tasty to conch, which is a type of um, crustacean. And when you want to catch conch, the best thing to catch them with is horseshoe crabs. But then there's the science need for them, and then there's the fisherman need for them. So there's this crazy cat and mouse that happens in the Brooklyn Harbors where police in helicopters chase down these little fishermen piling their boats with this illegal catch of horseshoe crabs. And I went out with the police, and I went out with the fishermen, and I hunted on both sides of the horseshoe crab poaching dynamic in who, Brooklyn. Who, who did your heart favor? Oh, God. The reporter never tells. Oh. <laughs> but it really makes you realize that life is full of these little mini dramas. You just have to dig deeper and look below the surface. You'd have no idea that that was there. Right? And that's why I love industries where you work with people, as I'm sure you hear story after story. And Oh, it's the best. Yeah. It's so interesting. And I become people I never thought I would ever be. I mean, whoever thought I would be sprinting across Jamaica Bay with, in a boat full of illegally caught crabs all like 
I can see that. You could see that? Can see yeah, that. it seems really me. Okay. What does beauty mean to you? Mm. Oh, beauty is people. That's it. Uh, there's beauty in everyone. The thing about being a journalist is everyone is interesting. Even really, really boring people, I'm like, why are you so boring? How did you get that way? And that's interesting. And so, like, when you get to this sort I've of... I've heard that's the trick to... Sorry to interrupt you. I've heard that's, a tri- that's the trick to a good cocktail party. Because you just... Find out the one interesting thing that you can talk to somebody about. And even if it's the depths of their boringness, you know, that's pretty interesting. Um, and I just find beauty in every single person I interview. Uh, and I interview some unsavory people, and there's sort of a, a, if not beauty, a fascinatingness to how they got that way. Um, and maybe that's an overly broad answer, um, but that's to me being able to see into people is where you find beauty yeah no I like that I I say that to my patients as well that I think that every person is beautiful and that part of what my job is is to identify those beautiful characteristics and preserve them and enhance them and that's Mm -hmm. kind of the art of underdoing it love it um, so as part of a little treat that you get for being my guest today on Beauty Bosses. It's more of a treat than sitting with you? Yes, even more than that, even more than the tea. Um, we would love to gift you any product of your choice from Scientific Beauty. So I wanted to ask you if there's any skincare product oh that you my would gosh. like. Okay, look at these eyelashes. I just want people to see these eyelashes. Um, I want... Ceiling, <laughs> ceiling grazing eyelashes. So I would love the Platinum Perfect, but as a uh, New York Times reporter, I can't take anything free, so I will buy a bottle of it. Thank oh, you. Oh, God. Okay, amazing. Well, we will help you work that out. Thank you so much. And then, um, then I'll just give you this cup of tea. <laughs> that I can take. Cheers. <laughs> um, and finally, I'd like to end by asking you, since this is Beauty Bosses, what does being a boss mean to you in a general or specific sense of the word? Hmm. You know, I'm a boss of myself. I've had people work for me in the past, but to me, I I largely regulate my own time and I plot my own career. And I think it's having vision and then identifying the steps to get to your goals. That to me is being a boss. I love it. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Sarah Maslin Near. Thanks so much. You are brilliant and amazing, and we can't wait to hear what you have in store for us next. <laughs>